We are beginning a new sermon series today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter number 6. For those of you that may not be aware, we offer uh, what we call the smart app, the Bible app on your smartphone. And you can turn there and go to the smart, (laughs) you can go to the Bible app, click on it, click on events, and it will bring up Trinity Faith Church. And there you have all my sermon notes, so it makes it kind of convenient. And if you'd like to use that, we'd certainly invite you to. It's all free. Just download the Bible app if you haven't done it yet, and uh, you can follow along. New sermon series entitled it Fans or Followers. I want to begin reading with verse number 22 of John chapter number 6, and this is the New Living Translation. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. Miraculously, he has not only done that, but he has, at the end of that day, walked on the water to his disciples who were struggling out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And once they get to the other side, Jesus begins to see the intent of those who have come after him to that other side of the sea. And verse 22 says, The next day the crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat, and they realized Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you, for God the Father has given me the seal of his approval." They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? But Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and at the last day I will raise them up. As it is written in the Scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father, only I who was sent from God have seen him. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. Again, the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I'm the true bread that came down from heaven, and anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. He said these things while in the synagogues in Capernaum, and many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives uh, eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. And then he said, that is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. And at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus said to the twelve, or excuse me, turned to the twelve and asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Lord, speak to our hearts today to determine whether we are your fans or your followers. Holy Spirit, just guide us in every word that's spoken and somehow, Holy Spirit, convey it to our hearts that you are looking for people who will worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, actually a couple of years ago now, we did a, a study on Wednesday night from a book written by Kyle Eidelman, pastor of a church in Kentucky, entitled Not a Fan. It's been one of the best sellers in 
Christian books uh, for, from the time Kyle wrote the, wrote the book. And we, we had a video series that we studied. And in that, that book, Kyle makes this statement, fans walk away, followers follow. So as I begin this new sermon series this morning that I've entitled, as I said, Fans or Followers, I'm not going to use any of of Eidelman's book other than just a couple of of illustrations that I'm going to give you very quickly this morning, because my entire focus in this series today is why is it that fans walk away, and how can we be sure that we're not a fan but a follower? There was a man whose name was Charlie Moore who moved into a community with his new family, and, and he, he wanted to make friends, so he, he joined a local softball league. I believe I said a new family. I meant a new community with his family. Um, so he, he joins this softball league, and, and before the, the opening game, Charlie loaded up the family and took them all to the softball field and got them situated in the stands, and then he went out onto the field and and joined his team, and the game started, and eventually it became Charlie's turn to go to the plate. So he picked up his bat, went to the plate, squared his shoulders, and as the ball came across the plate, he swung and he missed it by a country mile. The crowd groaned, and he heard one voice that could be heard above every other voice that said, You can do it, Mr. Moore. Well, about that time, the second pitch was coming in, and once again, Charlie swung at it and missed it by a mile. And again, the voice could be heard above every other voice. You can do it, Mr. Moore. Third pitch comes. He swings again. No contact. And the voice cried out, it's okay, Mr. Moore. Well, they lost the game. The family gets into the car. They made their way down the road. Charlie turns to his son and he says, Was that you that yelled out, You can do it, Mr. Moore? And his son admitted that it indeed was him. And his dad said he appreciated the encouragement, but he wondered, Why did you call me Mr. Moore? Few of you are already ahead of me, aren't you? Boy said, I didn't want anybody to know I was related to you. Now, for those of you who may not have attended that not-a-fan Bible study several years ago, Eidelman said that in any church, there are people that he would call followers of Jesus, and there are people that he would call fans of Jesus. Fans are those who only go to church. They don't really do much for Jesus because other priorities are higher on their lists. They are people who are happy to show up and shout out encouragement while they're at church, but they really don't act like they're related to Jesus. Much the same way as Charlie Moore's son, they're willing to shout out, you can do it, Jesus. But that's where their appreciation of Jesus ends. See, a fan just shows up. And a fan will stay as long as they are benefited from staying, but if it doesn't benefit them to hang around, they usually don't. As long as they're happy, they'll show up. But they're the kind that get easily offended when they can't get their own way. Uh, There was a popular British 
teacher, preacher, whose name was W.E. Sanger. He told of a lady that he knew of, and it seems that the church choir was scheduled to, to sing in the town hall, but the, the platform in the town hall was not large enough to, inqu- to accommodate the entire choir. And so a few members of the choir had to stand at a slightly lower level than the rest. And apparently this woman was one of those who was forced to stand on the lower level. And Sanger said she was so offended that she quit the choir and left the church. Perhaps she didn't know who Isaiah the prophet was talking about when he said in Isaiah chapter number 53 verse number 7, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth, speaking of Jesus. This woman was a fan, not a follower. I said fans are those who walk away. If you're a big sports fan like I am, we've seen fans at ball games, basketball games, football games, baseball games. It doesn't matter. If the team that you're there to cheer for is getting stomped and your team is so far behind than the score that they'll never catch up, what do fans, a lot of the fans do? They leave early. Get to the fourth quarter, they're gone so they can beat the traffic. They're not going to be there to encourage their team. They're not going to be there to to let the team know, you know what, you lost this one, but you can do better next time. Things aren't going the way a fan wants them to go, and so what do they do? They walk away. And that's what happens here in the sixth chapter of John. Verse 66 said that at this point, speaking of all that we read from earlier, many of Jesus' disciples turned and walked away. No longer willing to follow him, but the question is why. Why did they just stop following? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do. He said something that they didn't like. He was asking them to be, to go beyond their comfort zone, so they left and they didn't come back. You see, that crowd that day in John chapter number six was not there to follow Jesus. In fact, they weren't really there for Jesus at all. They were there because they expected Jesus to be there for them. You see, just a day or so before this incident, I told you about it earlier in the first part of this sixth chapter of John. Jesus had been teaching a large crowd. The Bible tells us that there were 5,000 men present. And that doesn't account for the women and children. And they were there to hear Jesus' teachings. And as the day progressed, Jesus knew that the people present were getting hungry. And so he performed a miracle. We've heard it many times. He took five small loaves of bread and two small fish from a little boy's lunch bucket, and he blessed it and he broke it, 
And he gave it to his disciples to hand out to this massive crowd to feed them. And miraculously, everyone there was fed to the full. In fact, Jesus sent the disciples amongst the people to collect all the leftovers that were left behind. And they collected 12 basketfuls of leftovers. An amazing miracle. So much so that this crowd was, was so impressed, some of them began to talk about taking Jesus by force and, and making him to be their king. But you see, Jesus knew what they were thinking, and when Jesus had an opportunity, he slipped away from this large crowd. And he, later that night, walks on the water out to join his disciples on the Sea of Galilee as they cross to the other side. Verse 24 tells us that once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there any longer, they too got into their boats and went to Capernaum to search for Jesus. They went searching for him. Why? I'll tell you why. Because he'd fed them. He'd given them a free lunch. And just like me... When offered a free lunch, I'm going to show up every time. You can tell that, can't you? This crowd had come for more food. But you see, Jesus didn't come to earth to offer a lunch buffet. Jesus has no intention of feeding them this time, and they're not happy. They want him to do another miracle, but Jesus isn't going to. So again, I ask a question. Why? Why won't Jesus do another miracle for them? Because he doesn't want fans. He wants followers. So what does a follower look like? The difference between a fan and a follower comes down, I believe, to a difference of motivation and, and priorities. A follower is the type that means it when they sing that old gospel song, Where He Leads, I'll Follow. You probably know it. Help me with it. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him, with him, all the way. Now, did you catch that? Where, we, where will we go? Where he leads us. How far will we go? All the way. Now, please indulge me for just a second. I, I know you don't know this because I made it up. But fans don't sing that song that way. I believe that fans sing it more like this. I'll go with you till the summer. And the baseball games and my vacations and the campouts get in the way. I'll go with you till the winter. And I have to spend three months in Florida or Texas or wherever, and I really don't want to get involved in serving you any more than that. I'll go with you till life's a bummer. And I don't feel like getting out of bed or having people mistreat me, and I don't feel like God has answered my prayers the way that I wanted him to. If not, I'll say so long, so long, and walk 
away. Fans give up and walk away. You know what? Another thing just popped into my mind. Sometimes fans will stay and do more damage in staying than they do by walking away. But I'll get to that in another sermon. But followers, followers will follow Jesus no matter where he leads them. You can see the difference between fans and followers in the way that they worship. Fans go to church to experience the ritual and the routine that they become accustomed to in church. Followers, on the other hand, go to experience Jesus. Fans like those rituals because those, those rituals make them feel religious. Unfortunately, those rituals don't make much of a difference in how they live their lives. Followers, on the other hand, love experiencing the touch of Jesus that they find in worship, and that worship changes and transforms them. That experience shapes them. It molds them into a different kind of person. And they worship with the expectation that that experience is going to change them. For fans, the spiritual connotations of worship are a little bit hard for them to grasp. Jesus told the fan-filled crowds there in verse number 51 of John 6, he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, they will live forever, and this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. And then he goes on to say in verse number 52, the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. They said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus again says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. Now, I'm sure that you'd probably agree with me that when we read words and and hear words such as those that I just spoke about eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood, that sounds a bit bizarre. At least it does to me. I mean, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, something doesn't sound quite right. And if you take those words of Jesus literally, you'd be right. That sounds strange. But Jesus isn't talking about this in a literal way. He's speaking spiritual words filled with spiritual truths. You'll notice throughout the Gospels that Jesus taught this way often during his ministry. There was one occasion when he said, you know what? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, how many of you want to take that literally? If we are to take those words literally, we're all in trouble. But that's just an example of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus wasn't talking about literally plucking out our eyes or cutting off our hands. And in the same way, he isn't talking here about literally eating of his flesh and drinking his blood. He is referring to the fact that he is just about ready to go die on a cross. And when that happens, his flesh is going to be torn and his blood is going to be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, we had... we. 
experience communion this morning, and I don't want anybody to confuse this as being about taking communion. This is about having life because of Jesus doing what he did on the cross for us. And we find our nourishment, maybe I should say our fulfillment and satisfaction as his followers because we feed on his sacrifice. You see, friends, we're not here this morning to go through some rituals. We're not here to have some kind of ritualistic ceremony. We're not here to fulfill our quota of religious service for the week. We're not here to punch a time clock or put a notch in our belt. We are here to feed on Jesus. That Jesus who died for us was buried, who rose from the grave. You know, that's why I like the idea of doing communion right in the middle of a worship service. That's why we do it every four to six weeks around here, not because it's a ritual, uh, not because it's a requirement. We do it because we need to remember why we're here. Everything that we do as followers of Jesus should be centered around the sacrifice of Jesus. Our songs should remind us of Christ's sacrifice. Our prayers should be based on Christ's sacrifice. My messages should find their power and their effectiveness in the sacrifice of Jesus. As I said earlier, without the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross... Nothing we do here has any eternal value. The bread and the cup only remind us of that truth that it's because of his sacrifice that we have life. Unless we feed on the sacrifice of Christ every day of our lives, our faith will become little more than a ritual. And this tendency toward ritualism can hit any one of us at any time. We get caught up in the way that we have to do it, the way that we've always done it. Friends, don't don't be distracted by that kind of thing. We are here to focus on feed on Jesus, what he has to give us today. As you might be aware, I've attended a lot of church conferences down through the years that have to do with what we do in church. And I remember one such conference hearing a couple of different pastors tell about how they did things in their church. And one of them mentioned that his church had two different worship teams, Jacob, two different ones. One worship team would lead singing on one Sunday and the other on another Sunday. And in the weeks before they led worship, each of those teams would spend time practicing their songs. But their practice experiences were different from each other. The first team would work on precision and perfection. They wanted to make sure that they got every chord, every word, and every beat perfect. And then when the time came for them to lead worship on Sunday, their songs were technically perfect. But they weren't especially inspiring, especially in light of the second team, because when the second team led worship, it felt like they were worshiping as they led. And the pastor said it seemed that the audience responded better to the second worship team. What had they done differently? Here's what they'd done differently. They didn't just practice throughout the week. They worshiped as they practiced. 
They sang the songs not so much out of perfection and precision, but they sang songs out of, the songs out of love and devotion to the one that they were singing about. Fans appreciated the perfection of the first team. Followers were drawn to the worship of the words of the songs of the second team. So I'm going to close this message this morning with just one more thing. This is going to be a good series. I hope you can make it for every, every single Sunday. When Jesus didn't do what this crowd wanted him to do, look what happened. Those fans got offended. And they began to insult Jesus in front of everybody else. Verse number 42 tells us that they said, Isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. So how can he say, I came down from heaven? You know what they were saying in that response? They were calling Jesus a liar. They were saying that he couldn't possibly have come down out of heaven because they knew who his folks were. They were the fans. They were the fans in the crowd. They weren't weren't committed to Jesus, so they didn't care that they insulted him with what they were saying. They didn't care that they spread discontent among those who might be his followers. All they cared about was to justify themselves. They were willing to damage Jesus just so that they could look good in their own eyes. That's what fans do in church. They'll say nasty things about board members, preachers, teachers. They'll bash committees who make decisions that they're unhappy with. They'll even spread rumors and discontent so that they can justify their own feelings and their own opinions. But let me tell you something, friends. Followers would not think of hurting Jesus or his cause. Jesus is what they have come for. The Bible then tells us that after the crowds left Jesus, they never returned. And at that point, Jesus turns to his twelve that he has chosen to be his followers. We know him as the disciples. And he said to them, are you also going to leave? Look what Peter responded. And I'm going to paraphrase it. Simon Peter said, Jesus, we don't want to leave you. Where else would we go? You have what we need. We believe in you and and we know who you are. We don't want anyone else. So Jesus, we will follow wherever you lead. Now keep in mind that Jesus had earlier taught his disciples in the eighth chapter of Mark, verse number 34. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. And Peter's words become even more impacting when you consider that Peter knew, at least on some level, 
that following Jesus at some point in his life was going to cost him more than even he was willing to pay. And I close with a story. The story of a, a Chicago youth pastor who had planned a spring break mission trip for his youth group to Miami, Florida. This youth pastor was so concerned that his young people would become distracted by the beaches in Miami. They were going to those beaches to minister to spring break college kids right on the very beaches that they had chosen to vacation to. And this pastor was concerned about the distractions. And so he did something very unusual. He fashioned a cross from two pieces of lumber, and just before they climbed on the bus to leave for the trip, he showed it to the group, and he told them, I want all of you to remember the whole purpose of our going on this trip is to glorify the name of Jesus and to lift up the cross of Christ. He said, the message of the cross, the emphasis of the cross, the Christ of the cross, so we're going to take this cross with us wherever we go and whatever we do. Now, the teenagers heard that, and they began to look uneasily at one another. But they liked and respected their youth pastor, and so they agreed to do it, and they promptly drug that cross on the bus with them. And that cross, they said, banged back and forth in the aisle of the bus all the way from Chicago to Miami. It went with them into restaurants. It stayed with them overnight at their hotels. They even placed it in the sand so that it would stand up while they were ministering on the beach. And at first, lugging that cross around was kind of an embarrassment for those young people. But as the trip went on, they said it became a point of identification for them. That cross was a, was a, was a constant, silent reminder of who they, are, who they were and why they had come. And they eventually came to the place of carrying it as an honor and privilege. Well, the night before they headed home from the worship or from the mission trip, the youth leader handed out two nails to each of the kids that had gone on the trip. And he told them that if they wanted to commit themselves to what the cross stood for, they could hammer one nail into it and keep the other with them. Now, here's the point of the whole story. One by one, the teens drove their nail into that cross, and 15 years passed. And one of the youth that had gone on that trip had now become a commodity broker on the Chicago Board of Exchange, and he called his former youth pastor. And he told his pastor that he still keeps that nail with him in his desk drawer, and whenever he loses his sense of focus on who he is and why he has become and tried to live the way that he has tried to live. He pulls that nail out of the desk drawer and he remembers that cross on a beach in Miami, Florida. I read that and I thought, you know what? There are a lot of us who as followers of Jesus need to be reminded about what that cross stands for.
Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Now, I'm sure when Jesus spoke those words to his disciples and when we hear them today, knowing what we know about a cross, that's not a particularly inviting invitation. But Jesus said, you have to take your cross. You have to deny your own priorities if you're going to follow me. Now, next Sunday, we're going to start talking about the cost, the specifics, if you will, of what it means to follow Jesus. But I can tell you this. Jesus will never lead you anywhere that he has not prepared a way for you to go with him. Ever. It may involve some pain. It's surely going to involve some suffering. It may involve persecution. But Jesus told us, he said, you know what? They're going to hate you because of me. And friends, if you look at the, the newspapers today and hear the headlines, <laughs> we read of, of Christians, followers of Jesus, who are portrayed as being bigoted, who, who, are, who are abused probably more than any other group in our country. And I'm sure that there are some followers who say, is it worth it? I can assure you it's worth it. Because following Jesus is about eternal values. It's not about temporary comfort. We have been called to be followers of Jesus Christ. Worship team, would you come, please? Lord Jesus, this has been kind of an outline of of where we're going with this sermon series that you've laid upon my heart. And Lord, I just wonder how many of us could answer the question, will you also leave, given the fact that many of us are on a journey of life that we really didn't sign up for. Perhaps there are some in this room, Lord, that thought that when they made a decision to come to you, that life would become easier, that it would become enjoyable, that it would not have as many consequences as perhaps the former life. And Lord, we understand that to a a certain degree, all of those things are true. But we also understand, Jesus, that there is a cost to following you. 
You've told us in your word that all who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. You've told us, Lord, in your word that we would be hated because of you. And when we hear terms like that, Lord, that we'll be hated simply because of our belief in you, undoubtedly the question comes to our mind, do I stay or do I go? Lord, that's an easy question for me to answer. And I know that it's an easy question for many in this room to answer, but it's also probably a much more complex question for some in this room today. Lord, when we sing the words of that song that Doug and the worship team are playing, it's not about surrendering this or surrendering that, surrendering the things that we are willing to to give up in order to follow you. The songwriter made it very clear. I surrender all. I surrender it all, Jesus. That means that whatever I come up against, whoever may come up against me, whatever persecution I may have to endure, I'm still called to follow. I'm still called to surrender. And Lord, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit is asking that question to every heart and life in this room this morning. How far will you go? How far will you go in following me? And Holy Spirit, I'm praying that either today or during the course of this sermon series that every one of us under the sound of my voice can answer a quick, wherever you go, Jesus, I will follow to that question. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to sing that song in just a moment. And, and I have to wonder, when we sing words like, all to Jesus I surrender, Lord, I give myself to Thee. Are we really thinking about the words that we're saying? Are we really committed to giving all to Jesus? I want you to think about that this morning as we sing those words again. You know, I hear words such as that, and I wonder if we have to say them through gritted teeth. I wonder if the Holy Spirit is literally having to hold one arm behind our back and giving it a little bit of a twist. Or do we sing those words freely? 
knowing that in order to remain in the presence of Jesus, we're going to have to follow wherever he goes, endure whatever he goes through, and do it willingly. Dear Jesus, this morning, you know each heart here. You know which ones of us are willing followers and which ones are struggling with the following. You know which ones of us here resemble more than, resemble fans more than committed followers. And Holy Spirit, I'm praying that you do a heart transformation, if there be any here in that description. Help us to understand, Lord, that whatever we have to endure here in this life is going to be worth it when we see you, Jesus. It's going to be worth it. That old song said, life's trials will seem so small when we see you. So, Lord, as we sing that verse again, Help us to be able to freely and joyfully surrender all to you and to follow wherever you lead. It's three minutes before the noon hour. But I want everybody in this room to hear me when I say this. We are the family of God. And as family... We share one another's burdens. As family, we're willing to be transparent and real. When one member of a family struggles, it affects all of us. And so never, never, ever be afraid to ask for help from your family. Jesus said we fulfill the law of Christ when we share one another's burdens. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to to hold back because that's what the family of God is about. Sharing the victories. We like those, amen? But it's also sharing the heartache. Sometimes the journey gets rough. How many of you figured that out by now? Don't make the journey alone. We're here for one another. Now, we're going to change the order of this day. We're going to go and we're going to eat. That's what we do best, by the way. And I would just encourage you to look around for some new faces. Let them at the front of the line along with our elderly. And let's just have a good time. Pay for somebody's lunch if they weren't expecting to come have a lunch with us. I know I, I can do that, and I know some of the rest of you can too. So we're going to say prayer over the meal right now so that when we get in there, we don't have anything to do but eat. Would you bow with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for our young people. Thank you, Lord, for their desire to go to church camp this summer. 
And Lord, I'm praying that that church camp will be a life-changing experience, much as youth camp was when I went. Lord, I was saved there, filled with the Holy Spirit at youth camp and called into ministry. Lord, I'm praying that you would do the same for our young people. Honor their efforts and all the hard work that they have put together. Bless this food to our bodies. Nourish us. Give us nutrition. And give us a wonderful time of fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you.